Forensic Friends. I'm your host, Shelly, and I am here with my forensically fascinated friend, Natalie. Why, hello. And we are both, you're still a little sniffly, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm exhausted and my sinuses are clogged, so if I sound nasally this episode, that would be why. And if I'm out of it, my new meds make me dizzy. (laughs) Yeah, that's no fun. I've had that earlier this week when I took cold medication and I don't know if it was the medication or if it was just how stuffed my sinuses were but every time I moved my head it would feel like I was what I imagined being drunk would be no (laughs) (laughs) and you know this was at work so it was not great my friend was very concerned for me (laughs) I bet She kept going, do you need water? Maybe you should sit down. I'm like, I'm fine. I just need to stop moving. (laughs) Just let me stand here for a moment. Oh, my God. I'm fine. I just need to be absolutely still. Nobody touch me. (laughs) No one touch me. No one talk to me. No one breathe in my general direction. Please. (laughs) I mean, I guess you're in a good environment because everyone's practicing lab safety. Yes, a lot of people are wearing masks in the lab. It's not really necessary because in our area, we don't get patients coming in. Right, and I was going to say, it's like masks don't help people who aren't sick. Yeah, masks helps prevent the spread of the droplets from people who are sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but... I I think that's a big misconception for people, especially right now, like... Mm -hmm. I think it might be because they see immunocompromised people wearing masks that they think it's preventative, but, like, that's for people who don't have an immune system. Yeah, and the masks a lot of people are wearing, like, the surgical masks aren't meant to protect from something like the coronavirus. Yeah. We use N95 masks that are fit-tested. Like, I I have to update my fit testing tomorrow. Which might be an interesting adventure because part of the fit testing includes, like, taste, the ability to taste, which hopefully I will still have despite my clogged nose. Hopefully it won't be clogged by tomorrow, but anyway, this episode is not about the coronavirus. (laughs) But you know what? (laughs) It goes hand in hand with forensics, I think, in lab testing. (laughs) Lab testing, yes, in forensics, actually kind of relevant to the topic of this episode which is just an overview of forensic pathology. So pathology in the normal sense is the study of diseases. Pathogens. Um, Yes, which comes (laughs) from, I think, the Greek word pathos, which means suffering. Yay. (laughs) It's great fun. And it's also the bane of every university science student's existence because any like I had a few friends in nursing, a few roommates in nursing as well, who had to take pathology. I th- pathology, patho- I think, would be fun. Um, <laughs> not in a university lecture format. I uh. think it's a, it from what I understood because I never had to take that course. It's a lot of information being blasted at you all at once that you have to memorize, which is my least favorite form of learning. And I prefer my I learned it from a History Channel segment. (laughs) (laughs) I learned it from watching CSI. Yeah. 
Don't I, learn things from watching CSI. I, hear, I think that is the the core lesson of this podcast. The first thing I think of when I hear pathogens is bloodborne pathogens, and I don't really know why. There's a lot of blank born pathogens. I know, but I don't know why in particular <laughs> my brain is latching onto bloodborne pathogens. It must have it must have been something you heard in like a show or or a lecture or, or something. It might have been when I was researching some of my illnesses. Yeah. It it it's it's also sounds very official. I mean it True. is <laughs> like it's not very, very scientific, but that is the plainest term. Like if a pathogen is bloodborne, such as HIV or hep- hepatitis. Oh, um, that's yeah, okay, that makes sense. I know that. I have a yeah. friend who is HIV positive. Yeah, so it it that's probably where you heard the word from. Um but we are not talking about diseases exactly when it comes to forensics, although it could be a possible part of the investigation. So historically, so you you know the words forensic pathologist, medical examiner, and coroner. Yes. I'm sure people have heard them before if they're interested in true crime. And a lot of the times they're used interchangeably. There are some slight differences, and I think it's also a regional thing. The textbook that I've been using for most of these episodes and part of my lecture is like the textbook is American. Oh, okay. So it did talk about the origins of coroner and medical examiner in the States, which is similar or passed over to Canada. So that's why the textbook still applied to us even here in Canada. Right. Isn't that um, so like medical examiner would be the one who does an autopsy for investigations and coroner is the one who does preparation for not that not exactly. Okay. So I'll I'll get into kind of the history, just a little bit of the history so that you get an idea of where the distinction is. Historically the word coroner applied to someone who was an inquisitional judge. So like a normal judge that you think of, they're given the evidence by lawyers and whatever, and then they evaluate the evidence and they judge it based on the law and they make a decision. Inquisitional judges are judges who do their own investigations. So you might hear of something called like a coroner's inquest. Yes. Which normally applies to non-criminal cases of death. This is usually when there's some kind of public concern for safety. So let's say a common type of work accident or like a disease that you get from working a certain type of job. Mm. They might do a coroner's inquest where they don't determine a guilty party. They kind of look at the situation. They look at like all the parties involved, exactly what happened. And then they come up with these recommendations as to how to prevent future accidents or whatever from happening so like with oh gosh i don't remember what it's called but with the football players and their head injuries yes something similar i'm not sure if that was like technically a coroner's inquest but i know there were definitely medical experts weighing in and making recommendations but in a like criminal basis the coroner would basically be a part of the investigation okay However, for a long time, these coroners didn't actually have formal training or education. What? How? Yes. How? Um, they were kind of, well, they, 
they were just elect. I guess they were like, this guy's smart. <laughs> no, is it like the fingerprints? Like, well, f- like uh, we're talking like centuries ago. Oh, okay, 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 yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of. Okay, I'll get into it. So that's obviously a bit of a problem when you have someone who doesn't really know what they're doing or hasn't been certified to say that they know what they're doing. Because that's not to say like if you like didn't need a formal education doesn't mean you don't have one like I technically didn't need a bachelor's to work in my current field I could have just done my certification at during that one college program but like having the bachelor's helps because I have a deeper understanding of a lot of the medical and sciencey stuff so because this was an obvious problem this changed in 1877 at least in the United States when Massachusetts which was the hardest thing to spell (laughs) there's too many too many letters welcome (laughs) they passed legislation that basically replaced coroners with trained medical examiners and these people actually needed to be licensed okay so eventually as more cities and more states came up with similar legislation coroners became very limited Although, apparently, even in more recent years, elected coroners might still act as inquisitional judges in rural areas where they might not have access to, like, an ME's office. Okay. An ME, I mean, like, medical Medical examiner. examiner, yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, pathologists are physicians who diagnose disease, like I said, in many capacities, not just through autopsies. So I know when you think like forensic pathologists, you think autopsies. Yeah. But a general pathologist is an MD who's basically in charge of like, they, they're usually in charge of hospital labs. Oh, okay. Um, so like if someone especially has a very complicated case, then all the blood work, all the testing, all of that, they'll look at all these reports and like try to figure out what's wrong with this person. So is that more like a diagnostician or like house? <laughs> I've never seen house. No. <laughs> Somebody it's, who's listening, please tell me if this is what house does. <laughs> have you watched house? Yeah. Oh, okay. I loved that when I was younger. I think one of the problems with going into the sciences is that it takes the joy out of a lot of <laughs> pop culture. <laughs> like, I, I can't watch medical dramas or, like, crime-type shows because I just get so heated at all uh, the inaccuracies. Well, House and, just, like, he's got the cases that are special where it's never lupus, which is the joke. <laughs> He gets all the people, they don't know what's wrong with them, and they do a lot of investigative work as far as, like, diagnosis goes. I mean, in, like, a real hospital, or at least in the hospital that I currently work at, that's a team. (laughs) Yeah, he has a team. Yeah. So, it's kind of, I'm guessing, I don't, again, I have never seen House, but I'm guessing it is a similar idea where you have all these people who are working, like, with the specimens and with the patient and they come up with a diagnosis so they can come up with a treatment. Yeah. Um, so that's we've, the same. We've had I think. a few complicated cases come through our lab. Like it's a whole, it's, it's a bunch of teams working together. That's why it gets so confusing because 
sometimes the head doesn't talk to the tail and everyone's confused. Oh, yeah. But since pathologists are trained physicians, um, police and coroners realize that they could definitely use their skills, especially in performing autopsies to determine the cause of death and also acquire any additional information that could help with the investigation. So in modern times, in most cases, a medical examiner is a forensic pathologist. Okay. Um, so that's why like these terms are kind of interchangeable because ME replaced more or less coroner, although coroners still exist, but, you know. Is it just like who determines if they're going to be called a coroner or a medical examiner or a forensic pathologist? Is it just like region or... It could be region, again, because the information I'm pulling is from my textbook, and that's very regional. And then my education was obviously very regional. So I think it's based on certifications mm. as a whole. Like, coroners might be elected officials who do these investigations, but by certification and training and stuff, like, they don't have a formal certification, so those are coroners. And then medical examiners is kind of like an overarching term for people who are licensed to conduct these investigations, while forensic pathologists are a type of medical examiner, I guess. So like... Who's who's in charge of collecting a body then? Because like my brother, when he was doing EMT stuff, he had to stay mm -hmm. if there was like a DOA or something. Yes, yeah, so dead on arrival, he would someone had to pick up the body. So it kind of depends on access to a medical examiner. I'm going to get into that just a little bit later. Okay. Because firstly, I want to talk about what actually falls under a medical examiner's jurisdiction. As you might imagine, suspicious deaths would like yeah. you know, anything that needs investigation is going to go to the medical examiner, but sometimes there might not be any criminal activity that's apparent. So there's a two-pronged test for deaths that have no apparent injury as to whether or not they fall into a medical examiner or forensic pathologist jurisdiction. So firstly, they have to determine, was the death sudden? And sudden basically means like it occurred within a few hours of symptom onset or if there were no symptoms at all. Okay. Uh, and then the second test is was this death unexpected which in that case you might need to get that person's medical history like if they had a history of heart disease and they suddenly pass away from a heart attack it is sudden but it's not necessarily unexpected uh, so it's kind of like my grandfather died he had what's the major artery in your in your torso that is like if, if it bursts you're just dead do you know what I'm talking about like well, any major artery. No, I, I know, I know, I know. But there's one specifically that can rupture sometimes and there's no real like... Like a coronary artery? I don't know. I hear that a lot. But that's like the artery that goes around your heart to supply blood to your actual heart muscles. All I know is it's somewhere in, the tor in your stomach area. So oh, stomach. He died from that. He just dropped dead one day and... They found out that that artery just burst. And if he had no predisposition or history of that, then it might go under the jurisdiction of a medical examiner. Because they 
basically a medical examiner wants to figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. Like what's the cause and the manner of death. So that can apply to just regular medical cases as well, where no crime was involved, but someone suddenly died and they want to figure out why. Yeah, like um, my grandfather just dropping dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Obviously for the person's um, family and friends, for them to have that closure and also an understanding of what happened because that's obviously very alarming when someone just drops dead. Yeah. Forensic pathologists also don't have a statute of limitations on fatal injuries. So this was kind of oh. interesting because the information um, or the the example that was given was, for example, let's say someone was shot. They had okay. a gunshot wound. They lived. But then a few years later, they got pneumonia and they died. Whoa. Well, the medical examiner or forensic pathologist is still supposed to determine if that pneumonia was maybe linked to the gunshot wound. Seriously? Yeah, because you're thinking of, like, cause of death, complications from pneumonia. Manner of death? Well, if it wasn't related, like if someone was just, you know, out in the cold and or they were infected somewhere else because a friend of mine caught pneumonia. She's also working. Well, she works in a merge. So that was worse. <laughs> she oh, no. actually gets exposed to patients. But um, like, did this person catch it from someone else? Or was it due to, I mean, depending on where the gunshot wound was, it could lead to complications and increased possibility of infections. So, oh, so technically. Like, if I had died in sepsis, then, like they wouldn't have known I was septic. So they would be like, did I die from the surgery? Which complications from surgery? Right. Interesting. So, yeah, because, like, I'm sure you've seen this in, in crime shows, but when you talk about manner of death, there's, like, accidental death, yeah. natural death, and then homicide or suicide. So, yeah. technically, if this person caught pneumonia and died from it, and the pneumonia was in some way caused by the gunshot wound, then the manner of death is homicide. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, so so even though years down the line, like, or you might hear about some cases where um, if a person was attacked and they, like, maybe there was a piece of metal that was lodged in them from the knife. Or yeah. Whatever, and then that metal eventually travels to the heart and it kills them. Even though that might be years down the line, a forensic pathologist would still try to see if there was a link. And obviously, if it was the metal from the attack, then that assault now becomes a murder. Can you can you prosecute someone on that? That would probably be based on like what statute of limitations for a criminal case would be in wherever that jurisdiction is. When okay. I say statute of limitations for like in that scenario, it's specifically to the forensic pathologist. So they have jurisdiction to investigate Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it is not statute of limitations when it comes to the persecution. I know, like, I don't think there is a statute of limitations on murder in Canada. I don't, I don't think there's there one, is one in the States. But that's that's basically what I mean. Like, there, it's still within their jurisdiction no matter how much time has passed. Mm. Rape is still, that uh, rape has a statute of limitations. Just fun facts. Which is fucked up. I'm not sure if it does in Canada. Hopefully not. <laughs> because um, in my law class, I sat in a trial that was, this is a very upsetting case. I got very upset sitting in on this. 
it was the alleged sexual assault of a woman who was at the time in her teens. So I think it was at least 15, almost 20 years ago at the hands of a police officer. Great. Yeah, so it was a very upsetting case. Spoiler alert, they found him not guilty. <laughs> wow, I this is my surprise voice. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, I can't say definitively what it was, but like you know, you there's know. There's a there's a bad power dynamic there and Absolutely. And <sighs> part of the problem was there was conflicting um stories because it was so long ago. Yeah. So the I testimony- mean, I can't blame her for saying like coming out later because hello, it's a police officer. You don't yeah, want to deal was- with that. It was a full-on, like, grooming situation. Oh, man. So it, that was a rough one, but given that the alleged crimes happened many, many, like, well over a decade ago, because I believe the woman was in her 30s at the time, like, when I sat in on the trial. So I, I'm not sure if maybe it was still within the limitations or if we just don't have one. Mm. Something I will look up eventually. <laughs> <laughs> depending on how angry I want to get. Right, so what does a medical examiner or forensic pathologist actually do? So part of their duties include acquiring and understanding a decedent's medical history, which, like I said, could be relevant to whether or not it even falls under their jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. It can also provide context and also, like, some of these, like, natural pathologies that this person has might, change how a medical examiner would determine the cause of death because they could complicate things definitely yeah um, depending on what the illnesses are and they'll also acquire and review witness statements regarding the death if there are any and there was a little thing in the textbook that said like forensic pathology has disputed many witness statements which is like really sketchy (laughs) like why are people giving all these weird witness statements like is it because they were actually the perpetrators or was it like a memory lapse i will say i know that like this has happened when there are a lot of witnesses to crimes Mm -hmm. psychologically your brain tries to make sense of what's happening and you don't realize it so like it tries to fill in holes so when there's like a mass shooting or something like that people's stories can really differ I think we will definitely do an episode at some point about that aspect of forensic psychology, which is the memory of witnesses, because it is complicated, it is fascinating, and it's frustrating because it is so weird to think, like, we hold our memories kind of like they're the truth. And they're not always. (laughs) They're not always. So, yeah, that's going to be a very interesting episode. Actually, <laughs> I might I might insert this part at the front because I totally forgot about it before we jumped in. Oh, no. Um, but the reason that we are short a triple F again this week is because Dylan will be moving across the country. <gasps> what? Yes. Yeah, so he's, he's gotten a job offer over in British Columbia in the little in a little town over there. I'm not going to say which town because that's a little you don't need to know that people don't need to know that. But he is moving. He's always wanted to move out west. I think it was just kind of expedited by situations. So he is currently in the process of packing up and organizing and everything. 
so obviously he doesn't have the wherewithal to record with us um don't worry though i i am trying to make arrangements he did agree to continue recording for this podcast after he settled down over across the country and i think i lost natalie well (laughs) yeah so we're back (laughs) Woo! (laughs) but yeah dylan's dylan's moving across the country so we i am making arrangements so that he can record with us even over there we'll have to be a lot more vigilant with scheduling because of the time difference but he did agree to continue it's just you know obviously it's very busy to move across the country yeah um is it (laughs) (laughs) so yeah for for those of you who don't know i just moved across the across the country well above the country what what do you call it when you're like that's still across (laughs) across vertically (laughs) well i moved across vertically over a year ago now yeah and he's moving from the big city of toronto here to a what I understand to be a pretty tiny town out in the mountains. <laughs> kind of sounds nice, not gonna lie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, so next I'm moving to Iceland, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we all just move to these remote places. Become hermits. Yep. That's the plan. Anyway. <laughs> I forgot where I was. I'm gonna I don't know if I'm going to like splice this in the beginning or if I'm just gonna leave it here because that just uh, fits the tone of me as a podcast host. <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to think of what scientifically we're at. Um, uh, yeah, I know I, we were talking about roles. I think my notes are at the duties of a forensic pathologist. Yes. Oh, we were talking about memory. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, because I was telling you about that sexual assault case I said yes very upsetting okay I, I like learning about th- that's another thing I kind of know about is the psych part not as far as it goes for forensics exactly but what the brain can do when you're traumatized yeah there's been lots of studies on memory and what happens in times of trauma uh, as it applies to Well, as in like in general, there's a lot of studies about this, but in terms of forensics, there have been studies about like how reliable is witness testimony. And it's which is not good. (laughs) Yeah, it's that's why you should be trying someone in a trial based on a variety of information and evidence. But that's in a perfect world. And this is not a perfect world. No. And there are no perfect witnesses. And there's no way I think we talked about this. There's yes. no way to <laughs> truly get a sequestered jury. No, there is not. <laughs> you you can try, I think, to the credit of people in the legal system who are earnestly trying to make it a better system, they try to do the best that they can, but people are biased. People yeah. are, are imperfect. So that's why I was drawn to being in forensics and in the sciences more than law because evidence on its own doesn't lie 
is when you apply the human factor to it. So the interpretation of evidence, like the biases of that case, that's when it gets messy. Yeah, and how susceptible people are to suggestion. That's a massive problem, especially when you get to forced confessions or coerced confessions. Coerced is such a soft word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Manipulation, mental and physical torture... abuse yeah (laughs) anyway topic for another episode for sure (laughs) we'll get angrier as this podcast goes on like we we start off with like the really dry stuff and then we're just gonna get angrier and angrier (laughs) i'm not mad about it well you are because (laughs) exactly (laughs) okay back to being the emmy so you asked earlier about who actually attends the scene and, and takes the body away. Yeah. So ideally, the medical examiner will be at the scene. Okay. Because obviously to examine the body within the context of the scene, but also right. to see the scene for themselves, a lot of that information can help them with their determination of the cause and manner of death. Right. Unfortunately, this is not always practical. Mostly due to, like, cost and just accessibility because forensic pathologists, they are doctors. They are MDs. And they're very qualified. Like, the textbook had this whole section on how to become a forensic pathologist and also the approximate cost, which obviously (laughs) is different by the time I'm reading this than when it was published. But um, basically, you have to be a certified doctor like an MD, and then you have to go through additional training <laughs> and additional certifications. So while there are definitely more forensic pathologists than there are, say, forensic anthropologists, I wouldn't say it's like, you know, they're not a dime a dozen. So what you're saying is you they're all over the age of 40 because that's how long it takes for them to be an Emmy. Probably. <laughs> I mean, it depends. On how smart that person is and how many grades they skipped in school, probably. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But it it's not an easy job. You have to be incredibly educated and obviously very smart. So a lot of, say, less accessible places, a lot of rural places, they might not have a medical examiner handy. They might not even have a coroner handy. So in that case, the... Police investigators and obviously the scenes of crimes officers would do their best to document the scene. I mean, they'd have to do that anyway. Yeah. But that documentation would kind of stand in to help the medical examiner. Of course, it's not quite the same as being there themselves, but I guess. You can only do so much. Yeah, you can only do so much. Um, So, yeah. it And typically... Although ideally, like you would send a medical examiner to the scene, they also can't get to every scene, even in like an urban area that might be accessible to them. So more often they're sent to scenes that are complicated or unusual. Mm -hmm. Because, again, the context could provide very important information. Makes sense. So then we're going to get into the autopsies. And I want to point out that I am going to mention what happens in an autopsy. Not in excruciating, well, actually, no, in excruciating detail, depending on your definition of excruciating. So if you are not into that, if you're squeamish, if you don't have the stomach for that, 
We'll see you next episode. <laughs> or have been traumatized for the haunting of Hill House. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was not, but... Me either, but I... Oh, my God, I, I never like, would have done my sister's autopsy. Just saying. Yeah, I... Look, that that takes a certain kind of gut. <laughs> I don't know. I just rewatched it, and so for anyone who's listening, you might know what I'm talking about, but the scene where she's calling the older the older brother or the oldest brother and he's like she's like i am elbows deep in our sister's chest cavity taking out a bag of her internal organs and i'm like ew what no that is literally horrifying yeah i mean it was meant to be (laughs) so it's almost like it's a horror series but like oh yeah you know as if haunting isn't in the (laughs) the name of the series but like i honestly if my youngest sister knock on Every fucking wood, wood. yes. (laughs) And then I was, ugh, uh, no, no, thank you. Yeah, I actually considered doing my master's as a pathologist assistant. Interesting. um, Because I do think I have the physical, like the stomach for it. Maybe emotionally might be a different thing because, like I said probably before in this podcast or maybe in my other podcast but I'm a very sympathetic person so emotionally it might take a toll to see all these dead bodies but yeah that's why I didn't do pre-med I wanted to be a doctor and then I thought about it and I was like the first person the first patient I lose is going to be the day I quit like (laughs) oh I think you people generally end up blaming themselves even yeah it was kind of inevitable because you're like you were so sure if it was one of those like like there was nothing you could do even then you feel like you were so sure that you could save them or help them. Anyway, autopsies. Back to autopsies. So again, content warning for anything squeamish, although I think we're well past that point by now. (laughs) So, of course, Emmys will try to respect the wishes of the next of kin of the decedent as much as possible, especially keeping in mind that certain religions have certain practices or restrictions yeah i was gonna ask you about that like what do you do if someone dies suspiciously but the family doesn't believe in doing anything to the body now again this might be jurisdictional differences but the textbook does state like if it's a suspicious death if there's like a possible crime involved then they have to do the autopsy there's oh, no ifs, ands, or buts. It does suck for the people around them who religiously believe that you know, right. you're destroying the body or in some way like ruining their but afterlife yeah, or like all sorts of things. Different beliefs, but that's also kind of the separation of state and what is it? State church and, and state. Church and state is that at the end of the day, you as a country or as a government would want to prioritize solving this horrific death, like the murder and finding the person responsible over religious beliefs of someone. I mean, that makes sense. I just, that's rough. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even religious, but I know people can be very devout. (laughs) Yeah. But I think also many people are like pragmatic as well, or you would think you would want to think. Yeah. So if someone close to you had died from a crime, you would want justice served. 
which is kind of the general thinking. Obviously, not everyone's going to think that. They would think, like, just, you know, leave it. They're in a better place, et cetera, et cetera. In cases where it's not a criminal investigation, they will try to respect the family's wishes as much as possible. Unless the next of kin is also a suspect for the cause of death. <laughs> in which case, AKA they might... the husband did it. <laughs> yeah, they might have, like, another motive for... um not doing the autopsy yeah so uh again con- okay content warning starts now so, <laughs> autopsies involve removing the organs and of course examination in north america the most common method is done by the inframammary incision which yeah. you've you've seen this in Haunting of Hill House, probably. I can't remember the exact scene, but I'm pretty sure. And this is how most autopsies are portrayed in TV shows as well. So that is somewhat accurate. Although I think... Is that the Y cut? Yeah, it's a Y cut or like kind of T cut. So it goes from both shoulders to the midline of the body and down to the pelvis. So this obviously allows you to open up the entire torso. And it also facilitates examination of the neck and the tongue. I didn't know that. Yeah, I I guess I don't know where the tongue examination would come in because where the cut is doesn't go quite up that far. But that's yeah. what the textbook says, so that's what I'm saying. What? Okay, textbook. <laughs> examination of the brain typically involves, this is going to get slightly graphic, an ear-to-ear incision on the back of the head allowing for removal of the scalp so they would just roll up roll up the rim they do that show that was a bad that. joke i'm sorry <laughs> okay. they do show that in the haunting of phil house where she yeah. has a sore yes skull yes back yes on. and then they would saw through the skull carefully oh, uh, we didn't see that <laughs> no do um, they do that to everyone i believe it is customary but because why? they they weigh all the organs that's part of determining any underlying pathologies so you so, have to weigh the brain? Yes, I believe so. Weird. I've never yeah. heard that. Even if that person hasn't seemingly sustained like a head injury or, or possible brain trauma, I believe that is part of the standard autopsy. There are additional dissections that they could do depending on the circumstances of that case. Like sometimes they might look at the spinal cord, etc. I'll get into a little bit more of that. Some of it is very upsetting. But the standard is that inframemory incision, the Y or T-shaped cut, depending on how you look at it, and then the removal of the brain. So after the brain is removed, it's either immediately like weighed and examined or it's placed in preservative. And I put a note here that in my personal experience, gray matter shrivels pretty fast. Really? Yeah, because sometimes we receive um, brain tissue samples for testing in microbiology and usually it's not very much because this patient is still alive right they're trying not to remove very much of their brain just whatever might be necrotized or otherwise cancerous yeah cancerous probably wouldn't come to us because cancer is not a microbiology related Ah. thing that would probably go to cytology um, or anything that is removed during surgery goes to the pathology lab for Canada anyway but yeah we would receive these little tiny bits of gray matter and then we would 
obviously try to save as much as we could because it's the brain. They're not going back to get some more <laughs> if you needed more testing. Yeah. So we have to be very careful with those because they do tend to just start shriveling up once exposed to air. Well, then. Yeah, which makes it a little bit difficult to examine. <laughs> and then the organs, after being weighed and examined on the outside, they might undergo additional dissection. And in terms of other dissections on the body, again, upsetting, but in cases of abused children who died, they might actually make incisions, like more shallow-ish incisions on the skin, because that might show bruises where it hasn't gone to the surface yet. Um, um, so bruises are caused by broken capillaries under the skin. Yeah, bleeding trapped under your skin, right? Yes. So in a deceased body where there was bruising, you would actually still see the blood on like the rest of the tissue. Whereas yeah. normally if you cut into a deceased body, there would be it, it would be bloodless. Yeah. So that the, the body fluid is eliminated before the cutting. Well, they wouldn't be it's not like what's what's that thing they do where they put the liquid in? Embalming? Yes. I knew the word, I just forgot it. <laughs> Obviously they wouldn't be doing that. But because after death there's no more bodily functions, so like we talked about lividity marks, everything kind of just drains and pools to the lowest, oh, okay. lowest part of the body due to gravity. So there just wouldn't be any blood still in the veins, basically. That, Unless I'm not understanding something, how can you see bruises, though? So I don't know if I want to post any pictures from my textbook because they are pretty graphic. But they did show comparison picture. So where there was a bruise that didn't show up on the skin, there was like little spatters of blood on what was otherwise like just blanched tissue. So like um, the muscle, like, like if you look at, oh, do I really want to bring food into this discussion? <laughs> well, <But> if, <laughs> I, this, this might be simple and people probably think I'm stupid, but like blood is in your veins, but does it not? touch your organs would your organs not have blood on them no they wouldn't okay so you see if an organ does have blood on it then well not not just organ but like muscle okay so the example in the textbook it was i think it was the child's buttock um they suspected i probably through palpations they could a trained pathologist might be able to feel it but they did an incision there and there was still blood on the muscle and the fat in that area. But then on another part of the body where they did an incision, it was just like blank because again, like bruising is from when blood escapes. So if you were to imagine all these pipes, right? When plumbing is working. So when the body's alive, water is moving through it. But then when it's no longer working, it just starts draining to, let's say, the back of the person. Because if they were lying on their back after death, then yeah. that's, that's where you get the lividity marks. But then let's say there was a little leak in those pipes. So now there's like splashing on 
the wall or the floor or whatever around the pipes. Mm -hmm. But even after the water has stopped moving and all that water is drained, that splashing is still there near the pipes. That makes sense. And like, I know in my brain that blood is in veins and not like in your... (laughs) It should be. (laughs) Right. Like, I know that, but I guess I never thought of... I just never thought of what it would look like if if blood got into or around your organs. I mean, it's it, not a pleasant thing to think about, to be fair. Well, no, but I just didn't think of it happening. Like, oh, of course, of course your blood isn't, like, on your organs. Like, I just didn't think. Yeah, well. Do you know what I mean? It's Yeah, it's not something, like, I think generally people know that blood is in vessels. And how we get nutrients from blood and oxygen from blood is it basically diffuses across the membranes of your vessels into your organs or your tissue or whatever. So blood cells themselves should be within the vessel. Yeah. If it is outside of the vessel, then you have a slight problem. And if it is very outside of the vessel, yeah, then you Yeah, I've have... had a gastric bleed for months. That was fun. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> it was great, but not <laughs> by yeah. great. I mean, horrible and terrifying. Just a little bit. Just, a, I mean, you took it like a champ. To be fair, <laughs> <laughs> you seemed very calm about it. I was and wasn't very calm. About it. Yeah, it's just kind of one of those. Oh, okay. It was a slow bleed, and they're like, uh... We're going to run some million tests. (laughs) You know that meme, the comic with the dog in the room on fire that just goes, this is fine? Yep, that's basically how I deal with my body. That's me and my body in general. Yeah, that's that's how I imagine (laughs) you, honestly. (laughs) I mean, that's very, very accurate. (laughs) Like when they deny my nerve blocker for my chronic pain. It's It's fine. It's It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Everything, everything is fine. It's cool. I I love being in pain all the time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) I swear we're always going to get into tangents. But like, I also just don't understand. No. I mean, there's there's just stuff that I don't understand. But that's, again, like you're kind of like my gauge. Because, like I said, many of my friends are in the sciences. So when I say stuff like that, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. Intuitive or like palpation, pal, palpate. It is palpate, okay. Yeah, it's like palpitate, which is a different thing. It is a different but- palpate. Is like this is because I'm in the medical, <laughs> medical yeah. I, see, I know yeah. palpate is because like each the it's the pressing on things yes. to feel like it's the, well, it's all just, sorts of things, exactly. <laughs> it's the pressing of things to feel things. <laughs> Yeah, like sounds- whether you're looking for a vein to stab to get blood yeah. or whether you're looking for pain in the torso. Well, it's like... I don't think I don't- most people know that. <laughs> no, that's true. People people do not. Which, again, is why you are my gauge. Because when I say <laughs> these things to my friends, they're like, oh, yeah, no big deal. But <laughs> yeah, some of, these, some of these terms, like, I know I, I made a joke about or I was criticizing... Uh, scientific articles for using a lot of jargon yeah sometimes though that jargon is part of your daily talk because there's no other word 
really to describe yeah. it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's just hard when you talking to the lay people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's- like, I only know because I my body's a heart hot, ugh, hot garbage fire. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's so hard to say. <laughs> it's been a long week. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So unless your body is also a hot garbage fire, you might not know these things. Yeah. Palpate is to, basically it's to feel like it, it. It's like when you go to the doctor and if you have like a stomach ache and they they push your stomach and ask yeah. you like, oh, do you feel pain here? What does it feel like? That's basically what it is. And it's yep. used for all sorts of things. Like Natalie said, it could be used for people to find a vein to poke you with or <laughs> to see like especially I mentioned I worked in insurance so doctors might palpate to find if like a muscle might be tender that sort of thing yep anyway I forgot what we were talking about bruises and blood under the skin and palpating to see if yes. there is blood where it's not supposed to be yeah, so um, I'm not sure if the palpating thing is true, but I feel like if you don't see it on the, on the skin, then how do you know where to make that incision? You can't exactly go about cutting every part of the yeah. body. <laughs> so that was my assumption. may not be accurate. Someone correct me if it's not. And then in addition to those autopsy-based examinations, they would also collect tissues of interest and they'll fix it in formaldehyde so it might undergo microscopic examination or it might undergo histology examination which is basically when they take like tissue and then they very thinly slice it so you kind of get like a single layer of cells and then they'll put it they'll like fix it in wax and they'll put it on a slide and yeah we learned about that one when i went into the medical laboratory too but it's kind of specialized and we didn't get to do any of it because they didn't want us accidentally cutting ourselves with the microtomes which is what they use to slice uh, the tissue is that <laughs> so like when i they thought i had cancer is that how they would determine because they had to take out my part of my thyroid is that what yes it does help okay. in determine in determining cancer because they can see like very clearly on a cell by cell basis the masses of cells that could be cancerous Ah, so that's what you do for like a biopsy or cancer screening. Yeah. It's I mean, they use histology for a lot of other pathology studies as well, but looking for like growth and tumors and cancerous masses is, is definitely one of the functions. Okay. I'm sorry, I keep asking these cause situational things because to <laughs> me, if I can apply it to something I already know, it makes sense. Does yeah, that- that's... I think that's how most people also learn. Like if you apply it to something or you make an analogy to something that you're familiar with, it makes a lot more sense. I don't really know how else to describe histology other than like very thinly sliced tissue on <laughs> microscope slides. I mean, that's fair it's enough. Literally I just what needed it is. to have a, have a, not gauge, just have an idea of what that would be used for. Also, in addition to that, they might do toxicology testing. So they might use a syringe to extract urine and blood, sometimes from the aorta, sometimes from large veins. So aorta, 
is the vessel that is like from it leaves your heart basically all i knew is that it had something to do with your heart <laughs> yes it is your biggest artery unless i'm not I am a ventricle <laughs> no <laughs> um, i know very little <laughs> and then so the difference between veins and arteries in case this is not common knowledge which i feel like it actually isn't common knowledge I, I know it because I remember in biology, but I don't think it's common knowledge. So arteries carry blood away from the heart. A for away. That's how I learned it in school. Oh, that works. <laughs> and then veins take it back to the heart to get reoxygenated. So well, I did not think I thought I knew I was wrong. <laughs> so your heart is a pump. Am I going to get into anatomy right now after telling people how much I hate anatomy? <laughs> I think, okay, I think just basically there are different kinds of veins in our heart. Yes. We don't have so, to go into it. We are not a biology podcast. We kind of are. <laughs> I mean, yes, but also not no. in that much detail. So, yeah, like the role of blood is to carry shit throughout your body. Not shit. Not literal not shit. Not literal <laughs> shit. That's another part of your body, but it carries oxygen, nutrients, etc. throughout your body. So your heart pumps it out and it goes through all your organs, all your limbs, everything, and then the veins bring it back to the heart to basically renew the oxygen because from there it goes to your lungs. But the reason I mention the difference is because for toxicology testing, drugs can actually redistribute inside the body even after death because there is that movement of blood like kind of draining and and Um. all that. So apparently sample like blood samples from a vein would actually be more reliable for drug testing compared to sample from like the aorta oh wow yeah because it's like if you imagine i actually i don't have an analogy for this one (laughs) (laughs) i tried i think i understand though i tried and that's basically it for like autopsy examinations another big part of the medical examiner's job is testifying in court which we'll talk about eventually the role of an expert witness. Wait, I do have a question though. Like, uh, so the lens in the lens of true crime and in that sense, would the medical examiner be the one to speculate what certain like contusions or other bruises was caused by or just do they say there was a bruise there i believe that would be within the scope of their expertise okay um they would definitely have to consult with other experts but a forensic pathologist would typically undergo more training in other fields of forensics to help with like putting all that knowledge together okay so like they might not be as well-educated in, say, ballistics as someone who is actually a ballistics expert, but they might undergo some basic education to understand, like, the what happens to a bullet upon impact in the body because, actually, mm. a lot of different things can happen. It doesn't just yeah. go through your body. It depends on how much force, how far away it was. Look forward to that the episode. Angle. Yeah, so that's stuff that they have to learn as well because even though a path- a pathologist can become a forensic pathologist. They have to have training in forensics. And 
this might be a bonus episode if I ever get the Patreon up. <laughs> but there is a series of cases that happened in Ontario that I learned about in school. I also talked about it for an older podcast, which ugh, that was a shit show, but full shade. <laughs> if you want to learn about that, you should check out several tangents and look for the podcast <laughs> T episode because I've talked about it there. But I swear, every time you mention it, it's just straight shade. <laughs> it is so bad. You know. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but this... It was a huge miscarriage of justice because a pathologist who was not trained in forensic pathology was doing forensic pathology. And nice. <laughs> even though they had all this knowledge as a pathologist, as an MD with many years, decades, I think, of experience, because I believe even before they became an impromptu forensic pathologist, they were already kind of renowned in their field. But there are differences so a forensic pathologist would still want to learn more about all these other aspects and how it would apply to the autopsy and the body. So if like, like you said, if there was a contusion or, you know, like certain lacerations, they might have the expertise to say, like, it looks like it was made by a serrated blade or, you know, when they say like, blood force trauma that's yeah. typically determined by a medical examiner. Well, then I got to sneeze. And that all goes in the autopsy report. Because I feel like everyone's seen at least a glimpse of what an autopsy report looks like if you're into true crime at all. Yeah, I, th I think those are pretty standard, probably diff differing based on region and stuff. But they might also throw in like a lot of addendums and, and stuff with additional information that you might not mm -hmm. be. Again, like, because the autopsy report is just on that like dissection and physical examination, but there might be toxicology reports and there might be other reports that are attached to that investigation um, from the pathology team, let's say. Okay. So, yeah, that is the role of a forensic pathologist. In, like I said, they are often called to testify in court. They are always required, almost always required to testify in cases of suspicious deaths because obviously they will tell you the manner of death, which is kind right. of the basis for pursuing this this charge. If they said, like, the manner of death was accidental, then that kind of wrecks your whole, this person is being tried for murder thing, right? <laughs> I know that with wording, I know that like they're like, this manner of, like, this wound is consistent with this yes. kind of death. Basically. I like so I don't know if it's clear though what the difference between manner of death and cause of death is. I don't know. Cuz I don't think I talked about it before. But cause of death is like the direct cause. So let's say heart attack. This person died of a myocardial myocardial infarction. I can't pronounce that an MI, heart attack. <laughs> it's hard to pronounce too when you have a stuffed nose and it's harder when your third language is English. Anyway, <laughs> excuses excuses all around um from now on Shelly is now excused from pronouncing anything correctly yes exactly uh so let's say this person died of a heart attack so a heart attack is typically a natural thing so then the manner of death is a natural death but let's say this person um or like natural causes yeah is that what 
Okay. Let's get morbid and depressing. Let's say this person was found hanging. Mm. Cause of death would be asphyxiation or depending on the manner of hanging, maybe broken neck. But let's say cause of death is asphyxiation. Manner of death might be suicide or it might be homicide, depending on obviously how the case goes. Right. But yeah, that's basically what the difference is. Like direct cause versus where this falls within the realm of the legal system. Okay, that, that makes sense. I feel like that's a kind of important distinction. Yeah, so that's in case people were wondering, because I realized I didn't actually explain what the difference is when I said those things, but that's basically what the difference is. Um, Emmys can also... I keep saying Emmys, but it just makes me think of Emmys, like the award. And- <laughs> That just confuddles my already confuddled brain. So, like I said, they're almost always required for charges of manslaughter or murder, a.k.a. suspicious deaths. They might also testify in civil courts for wrongful deaths. In this case, it might not be, it could be like accidental death, but let's say if it was like a negligent employer. Obviously, they want to figure out how exactly this person died and if it was related to bullshit that the employer was pulling, basically. Yeah. And then this one, there was like a really salty paragraph in the textbook about this. Oh, no. But they might be called to dispute another medical examiner's testimony. And this is this <laughs> I is have across, seen that happen. Yeah, this is across the board for all expert witnesses. Like you could be called on either prosecution side or defense side. And yeah, like you depending on the law of where you are, but typically, at least in North America, like you would have disclosure to evidence um, from the prosecution side if you're on defense. So you might, as a medical examiner, like actually be able to do a second autopsy or review the reports from that first medical examiner. And the saltiness comes from like saying how sometimes you might, like medical examiners apparently often are like personally insulted in court. They said like (laughs) they use like ad hominem attacks which is basically name calling or like they might get asked embarrassing questions about their personal life and whatever <laughs> it, i don't know it was just very salty and it was kind of funny because <laughs> the rest of the textbook was so like objective you know this is what it is but that was just i think that was just the author rolling their eyes at the stupidity of the legal system <laughs> i feel like this situation sets people up to kind of be petty oh yeah Absolutely. I don't think so. It's, excuse me. Oh, another burp. Two burps today. (laughs) It's not, I don't think it's actually as dramatic as they show in TV. When I was sitting in those court cases, there was one where I think I just sat for a few minutes and then they called recess. So I was like, okay, well, I don't know. Do I just sit here until it comes back or should I just look for another room? (laughs) But when they called recess, like the defense lawyer and the crown attorney in Canada, prosecution is the crown. Cause Which is, I find very weird. It's because we still like England, I guess? Question mark? Yeah, but it makes <laughs> me feel like you guys are still under. It's because we didn't really, like, fully become independent from England until, like, 1931. Which uh. was the, with the Statute of Westminster. I don't know why. I remember this because I've never been into history, much less like Canadian history. 
because yeah, that was the only what reason was I know about the school, but <laughs> the only reason I know about the cr- prosecution being called the Crown is because I listened to or I'm listening to a podcast called Uncovered, and it's a CBC okay podcast. So it's it's about the whole satanic ritual abuse hysteria. Oh, that's yeah. Funny. It's really good. I try. I don't really like some of the corporate podcasts because it just feels corporate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, I, I'm they did it really well, and well, they, that's something I'm interested. They in. have the money to hire really good investigative journalists. Yeah, <laughs> not like I mean they really do. Not like us. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's a really good series, but I might um, it out. Yeah, yeah. Unless but... it, it's sensitive, kids. <laughs> yes, but anyway. Yeah, so the the crown attorney and the defense attorney were like, they were having just a normal chat. They were like, oh, I think one of them was sick before. So they're like, oh, how are you feeling? Like, is that cold gone? (laughs) Oh, what did you do for the weekend? Like, they were colleagues and friends, even though they were technically on opposite sides and they were technically, like, adversaries. Because both the American and Canadian court system, many court systems in the world, is very adversarial. Because mm-hmm. you have two sides arguing the opposite, typically. But And then another really weird story that I have was I was actually sitting in on a murder case. Yay. Um, <laughs> which was, like, I didn't get the full details of it because, like, I don't really get the information. You don't normally get the information of, like, when this trial starts from the very beginning, unless if it's a very high-profile case, right? But, you yeah. like, at least in Canada, you're free to just sit in and observe so i just sat in and i was like oh it's a murder case and they were using video surveillance evidence which was interesting and then again they called for a recess and the defendant so the accused murderer was in you know one of those like kind of boxes Mm -hmm. i don't remember if there was bulletproof glass on it or anything but obviously i think it is it it depends on the courtroom Mm-hmm. Yeah, not all of them are going to have that because it's not necessary all the time. But she was sitting there and then the court officers who were there for security, like obviously they were around her, but then she was just like turning and joking and laughing with them. And I'm like, girl, Weird. you're being tried for murder. You are so relaxed. That's how you get crucified in the media. You don't make jokes in the courtroom where they are most definitely reporters. Uh, there wasn't. It was a pretty empty classroom. <laughs> or classroom? Oh. Courtroom. Well, lucky for her, I guess. Yeah. I wrote that in my notes that we had to take for the class. It was it was odd because either she was a sociopath or psychopath <laughs> or like or just very sure that you are going to win this like if you know you're innocent but i feel like if you are innocent for murder but wrongly accused you wouldn't be making jokes in the courtroom during your trial i have no idea people are weird (laughs) maybe it's maybe it's that like nervous laughter type of thing you know that's my thought too (laughs) but like if you're being tried for murder you can only cry so much well i don't expect everyone to be sobbing all the time like people obviously yeah. deal with trauma, grief, and and fear and stress in different ways. Um, I mean, I freak my doctors out every time I have a surgery or whatever. I keep I wake up and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> did you just wake up and laugh out of for nothing? 
No, I make all these okay. terrible jokes. I make a lot of jokes. So, like, when I had my thyroid surgery and you have to be kept overnight because yeah. you don't want bleeding in your neck. <laughs> Maybe not. If someone came to draw my blood because when you have thyroid surgery, your hormones are off, so you have to get monitored okay. pretty closely. Yeah, that makes sense. She came in at, like, 4 in the morning. <laughs> oh, no. And I made a joke about sticker. I was like... Did I get a sticker for this? Oh. <laughs> and she's like, oh, sweetheart, but I don't have any stickers, but you can have some candy. And I looked at her and I was like, I'm like your age. <laughs> she thought I was 16. And that was. Well, to be two years to ago. To be fair, you and I are both very baby faced. Yeah. I she, she was like, you handled it like a trooper. I'm like, I, my blood has been drawn almost constantly since I was but you know what my dad is a currently 59 year old Asian man Mm -hmm. this was maybe two years ago so he was still in his late 50s and he kind of has a resting bitch face so he looks stoic you know like the stereotypical intimidating Asian dad yeah we were we went to emerge because he's very low end diabetic and he had the cyst on his leg like it was basically just a wound that wouldn't heal so we were worried obviously because diabetics you know that's a very serious thing yeah so we went to emerge because that's what the family doctor said we really should not have gone to emerge but he was getting his blood drawn at triage just for normal stuff when he was getting the knee like he was like flinching and like pouting and <laughs> and the nurse looked at me and I just shake my head and, and she starts laughing and I'm like yeah he's a big baby <laughs> so you know age has no determining factor okay yeah. where where are this conversation go where are we picking it back up I don't up? know I think I was talking about salty <laughs> the salt oh the adversarial court system yes the yes. story about the lady who was being tried for murder and she was laughing. I'll yes. include that. Okay. Anyway, possible sociopath aside, <laughs> that concludes this episode of Forensic Friends. <laughs> that was a very smooth end, wasn't it? <laughs> because I'm going to take... I didn't know we were at the end. Oh, we just no, that was, that was the end. Because I'm not including it in the, in the episode, Natalie and I went on this long-ass tangent about drawing blood. <laughs> And then I just went straight to, yep, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was it. Yep, that was it. That was... <laughs> anyway, Natalie, wow. would you like to give us your socials and such, etc.? You said that and I thought of my social security number. I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to give you my social. <laughs> oh. My other socials. <laughs> are some kind of brown on everything if you like beating i'm going to be putting it on my personal instagram which is kind of natalie n-a-t-a-l-i-e Sorry, because I some need, people don't know how to spell i that. need to specify that you mean beating like with beads and not beating oh, yes beating <laughs> in a native american style fashion <laughs> with beads <laughs> yeah with beads on whatever surface i so choose yes yes so <laughs> kind of natalie n-a-t-a-l-i-e and yeah and
as for me, I already plugged my other podcast, Several Tangents. <laughs> that is a bi-weekly podcast, in case people are wondering, because I, I don't think I mentioned that, but that gets an episode every other week. So if you're interested in random stuff, millennial stuff, life stuff, stuff stuff, <laughs> uh, you can go there. That's at Several Tangents on all the social medias, well, Twitter and Instagram. And then this podcast has a very diverse social media handle situation. Yes. It is Forensic Fiends, like fiendish, on Instagram. Or no, Twitter. Twitter, Forensic Fiends. <laughs> Forensic yes. Friends Podcast on Instagram. And Forensic Friends Pod at gmail.com for the email. Send us your stories. If they're long, we'll make them longer. <laughs> <laughs> That needs to be your motto. <laughs> it's not a lie. Oh, man. Anyway, goodbye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>